Travel Magazine would like to thank its sponsors Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. We're here in the studios of Main FM, and I have Mark Halloran with me. Hi, Steve. G'day, Mark. And it's the start of the second series of Deep Trouble. We've got some great interviews uh, for your listening pleasure, and... The first one we thought we would air is your interview with Benjamin Gilmore, who's a very interesting person, a writer, a filmmaker, and interestingly, a paramedic. I had read his book, Jerga, mm-hmm. uh, Cameras and Kalashnikovs. Um, so uh, Benjamin's been a paramedic in some of the most dangerous areas in the world. I think I was really interested in the theme because the theme is around the relationship between an Australian who goes back to make recompense for a Afghan villager that he's killed during a raid. And so there's all sorts of interesting ideas around the culture of the Taliban and the history of Afghanistan itself, which has been called the Graveyard of Empires. A number of the interviews in this series addressing the relationship between Islam and Western culture. Yeah, I'm interested in the relationship between Islam and the West. I'm by no measure an expert on Islam, but I think I've engaged people uh, such as Professor Mehmet Ozap, who's an Islamic scholar at Charles Sturt University, and I've been very, very interested, particularly in the history and philosophy of Islam. Um, and I think a lot of the conversations around this tend to be polarised, mm-hmm. and they also tend to be oversimplified. And so I really wanted to get something that was a little bit more nuanced. Mm. Well, certainly Benjamin Gilmore, he says in this interview that he always tries to find the humanity in his subjects, yes. no matter who they are. In terms of humanity, if you listen to this series and you listen to the first series of my conversations with the Palestinian refugee, Olfat Mahmoud, what you understand is that human beings and part of humanity is our ability to express infinite amounts of creation and joy, but also rage and cruelty. I mean, you you see this in another interview that I do where we discuss the massacre of the Tutsi by the Rwandan farmers, Mm. that these were normal people. Mm. So normal people are capable of things that are unimaginable because essentially some of that is part of our humanity. Um, And so that's the same thing with the Taliban. The Taliban, whatever else they may be, they're God's madmen. Can I just stop you there? Because you do use this phrase a number of times, and perhaps it might be a good idea to explain where you got that particular phrase, God's madman, and how are you using it? There was a book that was recommended to me by you, actually, which was uh, Yuval Noah Harari's Mm -hmm. Sapiens. And he makes a distinction between natural law religions and sort of the more spiritual religions that have a god at the head of them like either it's the abrahamic or dualist religions Mm. and these natural law religions and natural law religions may be something like buddhism but they also might be something like capitalism or uh, marxism and what you see is once people are captured by an ideology 
an ism and their thinking becomes concrete and fixed and there's a loss of flexibility they are capable of incredibly constructive things but they're also equally capable of the most horrific crimes that you could imagine I'll tell you an anecdote that's really yep. interesting to me. I went to see Rap Epstein interview Peter Grest about the time that where he was arrested and which everyone knows about and he goes into he was put into an Egyptian prison mm. because of his association with Al Jazeera, which the Egyptian government was saying was a, essentially a terrorist organization. But he was there to talk about that, but he talked about some of his work early on as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent with Afghanistan. Mm. It's safe to say that his audience were probably left, centre-left to far-left. So there was a few comments around, you know, the imperialist policies of the United States, which he sort of deftly manoeuvred around and, and avoided. He tells a story about crossing the lines when the United States first entered Afghanistan and how they had to have white flags in their jeeps as they crossed so that the Taliban would invite them in and he talks about the sort of a humorous anecdote about having cups of tea with the taliban and everyone in the audience was laughing and thought that was wonderful Hmm. they stopped laughing when he said that when we stopped doing that was when they started cutting our heads off so not long after that the taliban perceived western journalists as a threat and they started executing western journalists and the laughter in the room quickly died Because yeah. there's a strong reality to that, isn't there? It certainly is. And so that mm. if there's anything that this series boils down to, it's that the world is a very, very complex, non-linear system, and you will not find one single causative element that you can blame everything on. It's a very interesting interview, and I hope the listeners enjoy it as much as I did. So let's have a listen to that interview with you and Benjamin Gilmore. I've read the book Paramedico and uh, watched Jerga and Son of a Lion. And I was interested in the intersection between being a paramedic and becoming a filmmaker. Yes, Mark. Well, I think it's natural, even though they're kind of two different worlds. There's a lot of overlap there. And I think that overlap is mainly in my intentions that drive me to both those uh, interests. So with emergency medicine, with uh, emergency care, with my paramedic work over 22 years, What motivated me to do that is what pretty much motivates most young paramedics to join up is a desire to help humans who are sick and injured, suffering various morbidities and who are in situations that they need help getting out of. And I suppose that with filmmaking, it was a similar calling. I'd never set out to make films for the sake of making films per se or for the sake of entertainment alone, but rather a cause presented itself to me and that happened not long after 9-11 in the world's response to the attacks in New York and particularly around the way that Muslims were being talked about in the media and in the community. And just off the back of a time I had spent travelling and living in Pakistan with the Pashtun people on the border with Afghanistan, when my experiences during that time were just overwhelmingly positive, And so hearing a lot of the negativity around Muslims at that time was something that kind of got under my skin a bit. And I I suppose I felt that I wanted to go into bat for my friends. I think that's where Son of a Lion really came from. Whereas Jirga, which about about 10 years later, made in Afghanistan, was more of a film in response to ongoing occupation. And in a sense there, the link 
between paramedic work and filmmaking was in the fact that if you can do something that might contribute to the ending of war, then I guess the absence of war is also the absence of morbidity and mortality and uh, reduction in mental illness and post-traumatic stress and suicide. So that an anti-war film, a protest film, which I would describe Jurga as, is my way of contributing to criticism of war and just shining a bit of a light on the impact of war, uh, even in just a small way to perhaps influence people's thinking and, you know, perhaps rooted in thinking that it will make a difference. But in a sense, the motive is very similar to that which drives my ambulance work in the sense of trying to save lives, really. I think there's about 8,000 people lost every year or the last year in Afghanistan. I'm not even sure if that's just Kabul. It's a country that's been ravaged by war, by a series of invasions. I read in a Times article in New York, someone had said that the Afghan people are only a, a people at peace when they're at war, which sounded uncharitable, but I think what they meant was that... <laughs> There was the British invasion in the 1800s. There was the Soviet-Afghan war stretching between 1978 mm. and 1989. And then, of course, an American invasion after 9-11 and the civil wars that occurred in between. But these are people, no invasion has been successful. No. Graveyard of empires, they call mm. it. And, I mean, there are a lot more people lost in those most recent wars in Afghanistan than that. I mean, we're talking, um, you know, something in the realm of, you know, six and a half million people forced out of their homeland, and that's since 1979, you know, when the Russians went in. And, of course, about, about two and a half million actually killed by war or famine during the last uh, 20 years, and that includes, you know, the, uh, well, maybe a lot longer than that. So we're talking millions of people affected, I mean, you have a country that's been ravaged by war. And so I, I have heard that, and I've heard it from Afghans as well, about their people being only at peace when they're at war. I mean, yes, I also, as you say, it's uncharitable. I also have an issue with it in the sense that well, when I was working on Jirga, the overwhelming impression I got was that the people had had enough of war. They didn't want a bar of it anymore. They wanted to live in peace. And they were an extremely war-weary population. And so, you know, I think they'd be happy with peace. It just so happens that most of the population don't even know what that feels like. And they don't know what it feels like because, you know, it's a country of a majority young people who have only ever known a state of war in, in, in their land, you know, people my age up to the age of around 40 you know i mean we're talking about 1978 79 i mean there's already trouble brewing in the late 70s but they've just grown up in that state before that places like kabul were reasonably democratic it's mentioned in your book even that and family members of mine went through afghanistan uh, in the 70s it, mm. was, it was part of the hippie trail very popular, very populist nation on the hippie trail, and, and not only for the inexpensive hashish that was available, <laughs> but I think there's this general feeling. I mean, I've read a lot of hippie diaries or overland traveller diaries from that time, and the descriptions of coming into Afghanistan from Iran and feeling as if, you know, you'd step onto the set of, you know, 1001 Arabian Nights and how uh, magical and you know, the place was and how romantically they wrote about it. And, you know, it's just so well preserved. I mean, really, there are plenty of parts of Afghanistan 
where there are people in the villages who are, who are really not living any differently than their ancestors did a thousand years ago and they've just kind of watched the hordes pass by from the mountaintops and these strange things flying across the sky and going back to their field. It's really interesting because there's a great opportunity and there was a great opportunity before the West went in there most recently to learn from a country like that. Here's a pre-industrialization culture that has got so much to teach us and so much we can learn from. And there are very few left like that. And in many places, they're living very effectively uh, with their ancient traditions and practices with a very minimal footprint, if anything. I mean, you know, from an environmental perspective, this kind of simple life that people in the West are now trying to you know, trying to recreate and trying to come back to as they recognise pitfalls of modernisation. We had these opportunities to learn from the Afghans and instead we've gone in trying to civilise them, modernise them, you know, and bring them out of the dark ages or whatever gibbous motives were or justifications for the occupation, invasion occupation were. Uh, but, but once you start travelling in some of these places and through the villages in the, in the east and the south, I mean... Man, it's just incredible the amount of the social richness of these tribes is something to be envied, you know. And a lot of people who've worked in, in Afghanistan have fallen in love with what it has to offer and what it has to teach us, you know. I think that that's what came through with reading the book, Cameras and Kalashnikovs, was your emotional connection, particularly to the Pashtun people. Originally, the, with the Pashtuns, when I first really learned about Afghanistan, it was via the Pashtuns that I was living with, making fun of a line on, uh, across the border in Pakistan and tribal areas. And so I was very kind of Pashtun-centric, and uh, I really admired their sense of humour and their resilience and their wild looks, their beards and their turbans and their Kalashnikovs and how, you know, you'd be sitting in a, in a circle of Pashtun men and they'd be reciting poetry and holding roses, but, you know, Kalashnikovs on the other hand, and they were kind of fierce warriors, but uh, beautiful singers and poets at the same time. If, you know, there's a, there's a real kind of romantic ideal that I loved about the Pashtuns and, and kind of fell in love with that ethnicity. But then in my most recent journey to Afghanistan and scouting trip, I guess I took before shooting Jirga and then in the months spent there making Jirga, we had Afghans of every ethnicity on our team. And I you know I learnt uh, a lot from them. And one thing I learnt was that they don't really like talking about ethnicity much anymore, uh, the young people, because right. they see that it's divisive, you know. So I kind of changed my language a little bit and used the word Afghan rather than Pashtun, because I, I felt that that was reflecting what the youth of Afghanistan, the way they were talking about themselves. I mean, some of the the war, I mean, in terms of uh, the Taliban, they essentially lost some of their tribal lineage. So the things that connect them to who they are, you know, in terms of agriculture, in terms of culture. I mean, I know that their interpretation from what I've read, and I haven't read very much, but their interpretation of the Quran is a mixture of uh, Pashtun tribal values Mm. and Islamic faith. And Jirga is part of that. Mm, yeah, and there was always this argument going on. I remember right back to the son of a lion shoot in 2005. And even my first visit to Pakistan along the borderlands in 2001, before 9-11, before so much changed there politically, was this argument between your ethnicity and your religion. And because, you know, the Pashtun 
identity is so strong among the Pashtuns, but it predates Islam by around a thousand years. Right. I think Herodotus or you know someone uh, like some Greek philosopher, a writer made yeah made first reference to the, the Pashtuns in like you know 200 BC or something, and that uh, you know the kind of intellectuals would argue that no, we are Pashtun first, you know. And so I was always caught up in this argument that they go on forever, you know, to what you're most called to. And I think, you know, there were consequences if you if you were voting for um, being Pashtun first rather than a, than a Muslim first, you know, because there's this kind of like pious element going on in, in the villages, you know, where if you kind of identified as Pashtun before you identified as Muslim, that you were somehow un-Islamic. But yeah, I mean, look, I think within the Taliban there is very strong Pashtun identity. But of course, you know, there is this thing that's kind of hung over from the 80s when Saudi Arabia, you know, kind of exported its Salafi philosophy and its extremism to mobilize forces against the Soviets, that the you know, religion was being used as a means of motivating, you know, kind of politically and cynically being used as a way of motivating these simple foot soldiers who were generally uneducated youth from the villages whose families could only afford to send them to religious madrasas, these seminaries on the border, and then uh, they were kind of brainwashed into Soviets, you know. Yes. And so, you know, there's still that uh, extremist element that they can't shake. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran, in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker and paramedic. I guess... To some extent, the heart of your film, essentially the the premise of the film is uh, Mike Wheeler, played by Sam Smith, goes to Afghanistan because he's accidentally killed a civilian and he Mm -hmm. feels tremendous guilt about it. And so he travels to Kandahar, which is Taliban country, uh, back to a fictional village where this occurred, this killing during an Australian raid. He's captured by the Taliban. And so I remember reading in your book, you're you looking for a reason why the Taliban would support him in his mission. And what it came back to was Pashtun honour culture. Yeah, Pashtun Wali. So for a bit of context for people who don't know, Pashtun subscribe to their ancient code of conduct known as Pashtun Wali. And within Pashtun Wali, various tenets, one of them being, you know, Badal, which is revenge. And that's kind of what they're most famous for, most famous for their, you know, their blood feuds and sayings like, you know, a man took revenge after a hundred years and even then he took it too early. You know, they're historically quite proud of this, but what people don't sometimes, even in that culture, often forget is that Nanawati, another tenet of the Pakhtamwali, dictates that if your enemy or if someone who has uh, done you or your tribe harm comes to your door and apologises with sincerity, that you're obliged to forgive them and not only that, to uh, offer them shelter as a fugitive. So, for example, the rest of the village might be after them to take revenge on your behalf. And if they come to your door, uh, just say they've killed your son and they come to your door asking for forgiveness or apologising, that you're obliged to do that and then you're obliged to take men and protect their lives from the horde outside. And uh, I find that that very interesting and it's a very early example as many indigenous cultures have of restorative justice this you know this jerga system and this what the film film's title is based on is a, a circle of elders that discuss your fate and then you know if you have remorse they can choose to 
uh, in fact, they're obliged to let you off or to allow you to offer some compensation and usually to give the family who has uh, suffered the crime the right to make a decision. So, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by the Puckton Wall and I learned a lot about that from sitting with elders back during Son of a Lion and, and just having those months and months while we're trying to make this film. Of course, you can't shoot every day and the pace is much slower in that part of the world, so it defies any kind of traditional film shoot where you've got a strict schedule and you've got people employed you know, by the day to, to shoot. And you just To make a film in that part of the world, you have to have enormous patience. You have to set aside months of your time. You have to be comfortable uh, with that frustration of not moving forward, of just sitting and drinking tea and discussing and you know, various political topics and cultural topics. And slowly, you know, people who, you're, who are hosting you are also working collaboratively with you, but in their own pace, you know. But what that allows is you to really kind of immerse yourself in that culture and there's a great benefit in that, you know. It's not... I mean, it's a talk at the moment about, you know, white people making films about non-white people, about, you know, people who come into a culture and, and want to depict them in a certain way. Yes. Uh, and I can understand those issues because in the past, Hollywood has certainly um, dressed up Mexicans to look like Afghans and, and made their war films in the Nevada desert and it's yes. all very fake and inauthentic. But I think it's very different to the experience I've had, which has been months and months of living with the tribes and eventually becoming a vehicle for them to tell their story basically submitting yourself i found i was surrendering myself to their choices and you know allowing myself to be a tool for them to share their grievances or their stories with the wider world i feel like the the your connection to pashtun was that they've got an incredible tradition of poetry and music so and it was interesting to me that you had a friend who left the taliban because they didn't really support music but they do like poetry. They don't like lots of things in relation to the modern world in terms of television or the internet yeah. or dancing. Yeah, but- that's changing. Um, and there has been a cultural shift among the Taliban. It's really hard to say anything generally about the Taliban because there are so many different groups. Heterogeneous I mean, are- group. You know, I told there are around about five major Taliban groups. I'm, I'm talking about little little commanders in their groups. I'm talking about, you know, who they're aligned with. You know, some run by, you know, the Pakistanis, others loyal and funded by uh, to the Russians, and funded, you know, ironically, Iran, India, and so on. You know, you hear these kind of rumors going around. You've got the original kind of Afghan Taliban, and you've got the Pakistani Taliban. Of course, it's funded by the Pakistani Secret Service, and so you know, which are kind of like a, also described as a regiment of the Pakistani army. You the know. ISI. Um, yeah, by the ISI, it's how they kind of get influence and always have, have had influence in Afghanistan. I think I was just reading the other day that the Pakistani ambassador to Iran, you know, once declared that the Taliban were indeed a regiment of their army yes. during Taliban rule in the 90s. And to an extent, that hasn't really changed. But in terms of what they like, what they don't like, I mean, what was interesting... Not long ago, when there was a brief pause in the fighting, and there was a kind of ceasefire on on a weekend not long ago, over a year last year, that the Taliban, you know, fighters came into the cities and they had ice cream and they 
you know, um, that uh, women were taking selfies with them, and it was really quite interesting. I saw a selfie um, between a, an Afghan soldier from the government and, and Taliban. It's interesting uh, yeah, when you have those ceasefires, isn't it, that people will just come together and find each other's humanness. That's exactly right. And I think you get freaked out by the sides a bit because, you know, people who are invested in the war, and there are Afghans who are invested in the war, who are on the American payroll, who are, you know, who are benefiting from the war in one way or another, and it's not in their interest that this war ends, that people see the humanity uh, of each other and stop fighting, you know, and the last thing they want to do is just that to happen. But that, that's exactly what Profiteers. happened. And but in terms of cultural shift, I mean, in Jalalabad, where we were shooting, which is a Taliban hotbed, really, and all, all around the mountains there, you've got, you know, you've got um, villages that are occupied by Taliban, including uh, the the village where Cheryl Armiskin, who studied plays a taxi driver in our film, grew up. And, you know, in a lot of those places, they, they have Twitter, they have Facebook, they have, um, where they've got connection, of course, but they've got phones. Yes. Um, they turn a blind eye to people watching TV. They watch TV themselves. You know, they're apparently cricket fans. They're cricket mad. Right. I heard on the grapevine that, you know, they left us alone because we were Aussies and they respected I don't know whether they respect the cricket team now, but they respected us for being great cricketers. I feel like that was the tension within your book and within the film to some <laughs> extent. Uh, this was interesting for me was that there was the country has been war ravaged. Uh, it's been called a country of widows since mm-hmm. the late seventies, and, and you've, there's obviously disdain for Russian and American invasion. But you're also seeing people suffering from 1996 to 2001 Taliban rule. And in 2010 to 2012, between 76 and 80% of civilians were killed by the Taliban, according to the UN. But it felt like, so you kind of said, well, I wish that there was an end to these foreign invasions and I wish that there was an end to extremism. But it felt like there was an internal fight to bring some humanity to the Taliban who appeared in your mm. film, the, the hospitality and the poetry of that culture, which was interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, and it's true, I would say, absolutely. And we are ready for criticism of that. And we've already yes. had a little bit, not from many people, but... Of know, the, the positive aspect of, you know, sort of making the Taliban seem... Well, humanising them. Humanising them, yeah. And, you know, I personally, uh, my, my personal opinion is that just about everyone can be humanised and, and I don't say that from under a rock. I mean, I've lived a little and I've you know, seen a lot of murderers, you know, all sorts of unsavoury people and yes. really troubled people and people who got a lot of, uh, who are very, very broken and, and, and injured from their experiences of life and their upbringings and so on. So I've always tried to find humanity in even the most unlikely individuals and yes. very rarely do I fail to find that. Um, yes. bit of light somewhere within them and so I think Taliban's no different and they're really mixed bunch and all you really need to do is actually jump onto YouTube but there are a couple of journalists who have in the past been embedded with the Taliban and have made documentary films yeah. um, and so you can kind of get to see the sense of humour and you know the ordinariness of a lot of these guys who have got nothing, you know, they've got so little and they're walking from their villages to that gun they've got in the mountains and they're waiting for that American convoy to come past so they can fire off a few rounds and then go back to their families in the, you know, on the dirt floor of their little mud brick house and carry on. And with that kind of really simple intent, which is we don't want 
foreign occupation. Yes. You know, and I think the way we're told about these wars makes it sound so complicated. And I think that's an illusion. I think it's a bit of hoodwinking. Mm. I think we're, our politicians are very good at, oh, no, it's a lot more complicated than that. And you've got, you know, the opium element and yes. the criminality. And you've got Russia and you've got Iran and Pakistan. I'm like, yeah, I get all those things. But to the majority of your Taliban foot soldiers in, you know, Kandahar and Helmand, they're in walking distance from their villages and... They believe they're in the 1980s fighting off the Russians. Right. You know, they believe it's just another they're version an extension of, that, of the know. Mujahideen. The Mujahideen. They don't call themselves the Taliban. They call themselves Mujahideen. And it's all the Muj, you know? Right. And so they're really just reliving the Russian. And they're having a similar outcome. You know, Americans are pulling out much the way the Russians did. I guess it's difficult because it feels as though there's a philosophical and religious divide that you would have to broach. I mean, in terms of the complexity of it, and you know, I don't want to sound like an apologist, but they, the original Taliban would have been children of war. So they went yeah. through the Russian war and fought in the Russian war. The, the t- Taliban, I think, means student. And so yeah. they said that the Americans were indoctrinating them with the most extreme version of Islam yeah. because yeah. they wanted them to fight against the Russians. And now we have the yeah. situation where Americans accusing the Russians of aiding uh, the Taliban which is yeah. uh, we don't have the end of history, we just have a repeat of, a repeat. Uh, a repeat of, <laughs> of what's occurred. It's interesting, you know, that the Taliban kind of arose from the ashes of that occupation and the millions of weapons left behind, weapons paid for by the Americans largely uh, and, and a few other countries. And then you had these competing warlords who, you know, kept competing for power there. And there was this chaos in which civilians were dying in enormous numbers and and losing their legs and landmines and whatnot. Um, and from that chaos, from that criminality, where you couldn't go more than you know, five or ten kilometres without a checkpoint, some warlord was collecting money, and so you know, poor people just couldn't get around. They were stuck and getting bombed. Um, that the Taliban went, you know, um, decided to bring law and order to the country, and mm. albeit it was a very strict type of law and order and I think Mullah Omar was actually spurred on to bring his religious students together to form a ragtag army after the rape of several girls in his town um, and they'd had enough of this commonality so and they went out in great numbers and brought law and order to the country to the point where it is said that ordinary people could leave a bag of gold yes. on the streets and would still be there the next day I don't want to justify their interpretation of law and order, but, you know, it came at a time when you could see why, and it was embraced by Afghans in the early stages. Dr Mark Halloran, in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker and paramedic. This is my impression. I've never been to Afghanistan, but in terms of reading about it, and I'm and certainly no expert, but it always feels like the Afghanistani people are stuck between these extreme forces like extremist yeah. forces that it, it seemed to me that the Northern Alliance was reasonably democratic and, and I don't think that they were accused of any war crimes and they, they opened schools for girls and things like that. Of course, the leader of the Northern Alliance was assassinated, but it seems like an extreme group has to arise to take order, but then they become the oppressor. So the Taliban then, you know, they rejected UN aid to 160,000 starving people. They were kidnapping people, uh, 
committing genocides in Somalia and, 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 and some of the Taliban were sending women into Pakistan into sex slavery. And so it seems like there's a really, I think, a heterogeneous group, but it feels like it quickly descends into chaos. Once you have that strict observance, I mean, uh, Muhammad, Omar, they actually started to move away from, from my understanding, the Pushtun values and, and away from Jirga, and he kind of announced himself as a not a caliph, but as, as a supreme leader. Um, and then they dispelled of the need for a Jirga and a council. It seems like a very complex system and place and political system and dangerous. Yeah, for- yeah, I mean, the impression I got from the Afghans that we work with um, and that I met on all my trips is that uh, they do exactly feel as if they're caught in the middle of all these forces that are trying to want a piece of the pie and they've got their proxy armies and there are a lot of Taliban groups who are proxy armies and Taliban, you know, you've got the Afghan Taliban who are native to the country who, you know, who are doing it for those reasons I described earlier, you know, but there are also ones on the payroll of the Pakistanis and other countries, and, and then you've got ISIS in, in the northeast and so on. But you've, the vocals are just sick and tired of just people just, you know, meddling in their country and, and then being caught in between, and they just want to be left alone, you know. And it's one of those things where I think that because, say, America wanted to stay for a long time because they were worried that and the Russians would stay, you know, yes. and Russians would be there in one way or another. Or and the Iranians having influence because they don't want the Americans to get hold of it, yes. get control of the place. And the Pakistanis uh, want to bleed America out, you know, and, and see it fail because they've always had that kind of thing going with the Americans. And, you know, so there's all these players. Uh, it was co- the British and the Russians earlier, wasn't it? The great game during the 1800s. I do want to talk about you, though, as well. And your ex- your experience. I mean, I watched the film and read the book Cameras and Kalashnikovs and it was you and Sam Smith in Kabul because the film had been shut down in Pakistan. Kabul, an incredibly dangerous city. I guess my point was that you've been a paramedic for 20 years yeah. and it seemed like Sam Smith was justifiably terrified. Yeah. When you were in Kabul, he read on the internet about the hotel that he was in had been raided by Taliban, people had been executed. But you didn't seem to be. And I wondered whether yeah. you've kind of uh, attenuated to danger. Yeah. I think there are a few reasons, and I've reflected on this, the difference in Sam's response yes. to the environment and the situations in my response. And, you know, and it's much the same way as, say, if a person who never experienced a nasty car accident, sees one happening in front of them or comes around a corner and there's one on the road in front of them. Their reaction may be very different to someone like myself who's seen dozens, hundreds of car accidents. To me, unless it's, you know, something really outrageously horrific, I don't think my heart rate will go up at all because this is what I'm barely accustomed to managing because it's my job. So as a paramedic, one element of your job is that, you know, you are constantly expecting surprise because you never know what you're going to go to. You never know who's going to open the door, whether it's someone ice-affected wielding a knife or whether, it, you know. So you develop these ways of protecting yourself, just kind of streetwise stuff about keeping your distance, checking your exits, so situational awareness. Yes. And then you're always expecting the unexpected to kind of state <laughs> I live in, you know, and I've had the privilege and the benefit of, of that because of my career, whereas yeah. Sam didn't have that. So 
In fact, he hadn't really been to Asia before in his life, you know. He hadn't even been to India or anywhere like that. Because you can just be overcome by the sheer numbers of people as well in, in a well, city like that. the people and the traffic and the heat the and chaos. the dust and the dirt, and you know. Yeah. Uh, quite aside from the fact you're hearing mortar rounds in the mountains, you've got the risk of someone potentially coming to your door and working out what you're going to do. So he was, yeah, a lot more heightened state. But I think there's something beyond that element too, and it probably stems back to my spirituality, uh, my perception of you know how the universe is, my connectedness to you know a greater force, or you know sometimes I feel as though, and it's a feeling, it's not necessarily based on any particular philosophy or anything, but sometimes I feel that there are problems with this point of view. I'll say in the outset, but sometimes I feel as though if what I'm doing is good and right and noble and you know good for the world and for other human beings that someone's got my back or you know that i have a certain level of protection now of course that argument fails because plenty of other people have gone before me who've had a similar motive and, and intention and have not fared so well so that kind of puts a hole in that argument i can understand from a rational point of view that it doesn't really hold but it is a feeling nevertheless that i had while I was there. I can't explain the feeling, but I had a feeling that we were going to be okay. And maybe that's just this kind of same thing as bravado or whatever it is. Maybe it's just this feeling I had to have in order to get through it, like a survival mechanism type thing. And I share that with the Afghan, with a lot of Muslims I've met, you know? Yes, I I thought that. Like that was, you you said in one point in the book that you felt a sense of protection, that the forces that created the mountains around Kandahar would be the same forces that protected you. And I had that sense that that might be what connected you to people uh, who are tribal and people who have a very intense and very old religion. It's an Abrahamic religion. It's very old. Look, I I grew up in a Christian household, you know, and and there's been stuff written about, you know, I have said in previous interviews and my father's an Anglican minister and, you know, of course I went on my own spiritual journey when I was a teenager and lived in a Buddhist monastery in India and spent time with Muslims and read the Mahabharata and so on. So I'm interested in other, in religions in general. I wouldn't say I prescribed to a religion per se, but what I admire about Muslims and what I admire about yeah, and obviously, you know, a lot of Christians have the same thing going on. Is this kind of this level of faith that your life is written, that uh, there's not too much you can do. You can obviously have common sense, but, but ultimately, the majority of people die in their own home. So even with common sense, you're not insulated from debt. It's around the corner. It's, uh, it can come knocking any time, anywhere. So that leaves you with this kind of, certainly this kind of level of fatalism or, let's just say, um, you know, faith in the fact you're living your destiny and that when your time's up, your time's up. And even though you take all precautions, there's nothing you can do to prevent it. So all you can do is go through, try and be streetwise, take as many precautions as you can, be smart about what you're doing, but the rest is up to some kind of spiritual domain that's beyond you, your control. That Dan would say, inshallah, you know, God willing. He always said, oh, you know, we talked about going all that Jalalabad road, Kabul, almost one of the most dangerous roads in the world. You've got Taliban firing at you sometimes. You've got these huge drops, you know, along the cliff. It's really, a lot of cars go over into the Kabul River. Are we going to be okay going down that road? Inshallah. What is the reply every time? God willing, we'll be okay. And that's the Afghan attitude. It's like, well, I hope so. You know, there's no guarantees. We could die. But if God wills us, uh, we'll survive it, you know. 
it seems like because you've confronted death a lot. Yeah, never know. I never know. Maybe. Well, you know, when you see majority of deaths that I see, the paramedic are people in bed, people next to the toilet, people on the kitchen floor, right? People who are too scared to leave the house. They're the majority of deaths I see. So that helps me to go. Well, hang on a second. You know, you can take all the protective measures you like, but if you live in a state of fear and you're locking your door and you're stopping the fresh air from coming in, you are going to deteriorate as a human being. You're not going to enjoy your life. You're not going to have all those lovely dopamine feelings and, you know, fitness and good health and all those things. That's what kills the majority of people, not getting sniped in the Afghan mountains. I mean, up there, those were always going to be risks with that journey and you take calculated risks and we you know i don't think we did anything majorly stupid you know we took precautions in Jalalabad. we had the police on notice we they were there the, the afghan national army supporting us in the mountains when we shot we had the u.s military the air force notified so they didn't hit us with a hellfire missile from any drones that was a risk that's when you said that you felt actual fear was I remember the riding with the Afghan police to Tora Bora and also being confronted by an American drone. Yeah, that was my greatest concern. And the one time I, one time, yeah, the moment gave me a tickle, but this was the one time I actually felt a good bit of adrenaline was when we were shooting a scene on a road outside Jalalabad in the mountains and the car dropped Amir Shah and myself off. He was our Afghan producer and we were on the side of the road together and we were dressed. I was dressed like an Afghan and I had my beard and I had a, a Paco hat on and I had my camera and we were shooting a scene where a bus comes past and disappears around the bend. So the bus came past, disappeared around the bend and we were waiting to get picked up and then a drone appeared over a ridge and flew right over the top of us and hovered about five metres above us now, it wasn't an armed drone, but this is exactly what I was concerned about, that we would be mistaken for uh, militants in the mountains and shot at, essentially, under Obama. And I think the policy's changed now, but under Obama, there's this very controversial rule that came up at one point in relation to drone strikes, was that any group of males of fighting age on a mountaintop in Afghanistan is fair game. So a lot of civilians have been taken out that way. It hasn't helped the popularity of the Americans. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran, in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore, filmmaker and paramedic. It is interesting Noam Chomsky in his book Who Rules the World points out that the drone strike assassinations mm. and even the assassination of Osama bin Laden was in violation of the Geneva Conventions to a fair trial. I mean, even Eichmann yeah. got a trial. Well, isn't that funny? And I was just reading something today. I never quite figure out. Like in the, in the civilian environment, we believe in a, a fair trial. We believe in due process. You know, in America, it's the Fifth Amendment that... You know, that's what you, you expect in a civilian environment. But we've got a completely other set of rules for people in other countries, you know. But they're just like us. I mean, they've got families. They've got kids they love. They've got grandmas. They go to school. They go shopping and cook and try and feed their families. And then yet, you know, if they look slightly suspicious or there's some information that's been passed to the Americans, yes. commonly by people one tribe has enmity with who would like nothing more than to for their enemy tribe to cop a missile they'll just tell the americans that they're taliban and that inf- intelligence which is almost always bad 
I might add, ends up leading to uh, to a whole bunch of deaths at the end of a missile. I mean, that's deplorable. And it's just no wonder America has failed in that part of the world. If you're just hunting people down, instead of giving them what they really need uh, to insulate their country against being used as a base for terrorism, what they really need is food and literacy, books, education, and you're just in the mountains hunting them with missiles that cost $2 million a pop, enough money to put 100,000 Afghan kids through school. I mean, there are lots of positive things about the Obama administration, but when I put this question to Dan Pfeiffer, who was his communications director, and in a written interview, he didn't respond to it, essentially. Really? Because it's a very difficult issue. I mean, we sometimes see people in other places in parts of the world. Uh, Chomsky says this is non-people. And so yes. it sort of becomes... Un- of distance. It becomes unreal, essentially. It's in your movie. I mean, the, the, the Taliban commander who was played by... What was his name? The guy played the commander, yeah, Bashir. Bashir uh... He takes the character Mike Wheeler to a place where his family, his brother or brother-in-law has been, uh, their wedding party had been hit by a, a drone missile strike. And so it's yeah. it's almost inconceivable to people who are not living in those circumstances what it would be like to lose your entire family yeah. in those circumstances. Yeah. I talked to uh, Dr. Olfat Mahmoud, who was a Palestinian refugee living in a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon, and she talked about those conditions, you know, the, the attacks from uh, Lebanese Christian militia that that oh, really, yeah. you know, the, this is being part of what drives people towards extremism. It's not an excuse, but you'd have to understand that that would be horrific. It's unimaginable to live in those circumstances. Oh, absolutely. Violence breeds violence, you know. Um, violence breeds violence. I, I, long, I long believe that. And this whole tyranny of distance thing is, is, a, is a big thing. Mm. And this is the beauty of what film can do is to kind of force people into a position of empathy. Like, all you need to do is get yourself onto the cinema seat. And then the filmmaker will take you on that journey of empathy and journey into the lives of people you ordinarily, you just see as statistics or, you know, you see in a passing news flash and suddenly it becomes a lot difficult to accept us killing those people or accept civilian casualties. It feels as though the film is about guilt, essentially. Do you relate to that? Oh, in terms of Afghanistan, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think someone took a shot at the film and said, you know, it's about white man's guilt. Mm. Uh, But I wouldn't deny that. I wouldn't deny that. Of course it is. Of course, I feel guilty about what's been done in my name, you know. I didn't vote to be there for 17 years and, and you know, with a, with, a, with a military strategy that was going to fail, you know. I mean, uh, I didn't vote to go into Iraq, you know. I, I, it's deplorable the way the West and Australia and following Americans into these blunders has, has conducted itself in these parts of the world, the disrespect, the killing, you know. I'm, I'm disgusted by it. I feel guilty of it. And so there is that guilt. And I think it's a a healthy guilt that has led to making a film that people are responding to. And I wish more people would feel that guilt and uh, and sit with that guilt and reflect on it. Yeah, I I am. I'm ashamed of how it has oftentimes conducted itself. And, you know, I mean, good motives. Australian troops have really tried very hard and tried to make a difference. And I certainly don't blame the troops. Obviously, you know, I believe in... All soldiers should follow international humanitarian law and the rules of war. I mean, I have rules as a paramedic. I can't yes. go around endangering people. But to me, I, I lay the blame on the decision makers who cannot conceive of a more intelligent strategy than to 
send more troops and keep hunting the bad guys. It's boring, it's old-fashioned, it doesn't work. Violence breeds violence. One of the most powerful scenes in the film is the jerker. So Mm. Mike Wheeler confronts the widow of the man that he killed accidentally and and his son and sits before the elders. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's authentic. This is the way these things happen there. And although that part of the script had been written in the first draft that survived every... I mean, it's crucial to the story, you know, the title of the film. Um, So it was always going to be there. And it was based on many discussions I had with uh, Hyatt Khan Shinwari, who was a producer, one of the producers in Pakistan of Son of the Lion, about Pashtun Wali and their tribal courts and their tribal systems. And, you know, I mean, look, I know Jurgis have not always made wise decisions, and there have been horrific uh, judgments made by Jurgis in some backwaters in Afghanistan, some really remote places, and in Pakistan. And I would never justify those. But what you have and still have and had and have in Afghanistan is uh, an ancient justice system that by and large works very well. And you could build on that by incorporating certain expectations of human rights. You could build on that. But I think what Americans tried to do, what the international community tried to do in Afghanistan with Western-style democracy was a kind of failed project in many places in, in very rural parts of the South and so on where you're trying to put in corrupt local officials and and judges and these courts that were very susceptible to being bribed and people getting paid off. And and basically, where you have that level of corruption and and word gets around, uh, people will just revert back to their system. They know that works and uh, they know involves a group of elders who all have equal voting power and is essentially, and there's a lot of elements of democracy in that, you know, you've got elders that have, and you even have female jerkers, which not a lot of people are aware of. So I find that Jurgis system quite interesting, and he submits himself willingly to that, which also was important to show that he was a man, a Westerner, with real humility, who was going to accept whatever judgment they laid down. You know? I think it was a stunning scene. I mean, you talked about them being the elders that comprise the Jurgis as being uh, non-professional actors, but I was stunned mm-hmm. by their performance. And you talked about it being undirected, uh, I think the elder crying out at the end about uh, Allah and his uh, mercy, um, and the performance by the boy who played the son as well. Mm. And simply his well, look, the, the look of, mm. of a, a young boy in a rural community who is already an old man. <laughs> yeah, they've lived such a hard life, you know, and even that chief of that village still gets up at 3 a.m., and goes into the fields and harvests his fields and works in the fields and, 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 the, and the boys as well are out very early and until late at night just trying to survive, just trying to make a living, you know, and there's a drought in the country. You know, so not only are Afghans facing war and insecurity, but, you know, drought and food insecurity. And But, yeah, in that village, uh, that was just a gift, you know, because we didn't really have to do much work with those elders they were just terrific and they conducted a i mean i know it's a drama film but we briefed them through on Shah and then they conducted a real jerga as if a former soldier had come back and, and wanted to apologize for a war crime and he they put mike the character of mike played by sam smith through that process 
and we caught that on film. So there was no real lines learnt in the traditional sense. And as far as the boy goes, we picked him from a crowd of youngsters about 10 minutes before we shot. And a lot of people have remarked about his face and his performance. And You know, you could have had a traditional audition where you invited actor kids to come, but they'd all be kind of from the middle class, educated kids and overfed and whatnot. He was a kid from the village, you know. He was the real deal. And that's the beauty of working with non-actors. You're going to get the real deal, you know, and it's going to feel authentic. And and that's what we're going for. I mean, I just find it amazing how, how a lot of filmmakers making drama where they strive for authenticity... I'm not, I'm not having to go at actors. I think actors, great actors are really important. But there is this whole layer of real-world people and real-world locations that are just a gift. They're just, you know, I, I just gives me a thrill to work with those authentic elements. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Benjamin Gilmore filmmaker and paramedic. I really was interested in your relationship with Cher Alam. He's a very special man and I think uh, his performance in the film really makes it and I'm very fond of him and so is Sam who considers him uh, like a brother or like a father and he's a great friend and when you watch the film you see Cher Alam, you see the light in his character and him as a person and I think it's really important for people to see because they see an Afghan, a simple Afghan taxi driver, and they fall in love with the guy. And I think that's really important, you know, that we start to care, we start to see these people as people, and we start to you know, feel for them and develop an affection for them too. And I think that's the objective. That's what we really set out to do, to highlight how precious these human beings are. One thing that I would say was about acculturation. I felt like you've been in intense situations, incredibly dangerous situations, both filming as, as a paramedic, and then I thought the strangeness of coming back to your wife and kids and going to the supermarket. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I just had to remind myself, and I think it was harder for Sam, actually, to kind of uh, reconnect with his environment here. Yes. But you really just got to remind yourself those people haven't had your experience have had your experiences, uh, you know. I had a lot of problem with, with indulgences, you know, even even ice cream. You know? yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, oh, you know, uh, are we going to buy this uh, $10 tub of boutique ice cream, you know, and you just, you're just conscious, you know. Uh, someone in your family is like, oh, let's, let's treat ourselves, and you just you have this thought in your mind, you know, and it's hard to get out of it. My, my wife always said to me, you know, like for a lot of Afghans, if they had an opportunity to taste that ice cream, they would do it. <laughs> so do it for them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. No worries, Mark. Well, I look forward yeah. to hearing it up. There was the interview with Benjamin Gilmore and look forward to the next project that he comes up with. I was interested in the final things he was saying there about the challenges that somebody like that faces merging back into normal society after seeing the things that he's seen. I talked about that in an interview with Tim Costello as well. So there's a process called acculturation. It's what we used to call culture shock. 
So you can't go to a place where the culture is almost alien to yours and you see things that are horrific. You see people starving or people who are victims of war-torn failed states and then come back into a Western democracy and reintegrate into your life without a certain level of distress. I felt that certain level of distress when I left Papua New Guinea and came back here, Even and that was only a brief stay, but seeing people starving, seeing some of the violence and the, and the health care issues and things like that for women and children, that's distressing. And then you come back to a place of abundance, and it's very difficult to readjust to that, mm-hmm. to the injustice of the world, the uh, lottery of latitude, as, as Reverend Tim Costello calls it. Mm. Well, apparently Jurga is having a cinema release just about now, and I look forward to seeing the film. Okay, next week we've got Dean Cocking on. Yeah, so Dr. Dean Cocking is a moral philosopher and he's written a book called Evil Online, and this book is essentially about how evil social media is. And he's a local, isn't he? He lives in Castle Maine. Exactly right. We'll say goodbye. We'll see you next week for another episode of Deep Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark Halloran. Thanks very much, Steve. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery, and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.